Hey friends, our guest today is a man who has changed careers many times, always following his gut regardless of the situation. A creative director at heart, he built bombs for the Navy, worked at a radio station, owned a hair salon, became a lawyer, spent time as an event promoter, was the director of operations for many years at the Portland Art Museum, and is currently a mediator. He was my boss for about six years, and I always appreciated his management style of allowing people to thrive with opportunity and encouragement. He took a chance on me and allowed me to get to the place I am today, and I am so grateful for his guidance. The first half of this episode covers his fascinating work history. In the second half, we kind of dive into the art museum and a few other topics. I hope you enjoy. Here is my friend, Rob Bearden. So as I was thinking today about where we were going to go with this. Um, I'm glad that, you gave that some thought. <laughs> <laughs> I always try to come up with something to, to kind of kick it off. Yeah. And uh, with you, working with you and for you at yeah. the art museum. Yeah. Uh, the Have you heard of the butterfly effect? I have. Yeah. There are a number of moments in my life where things have happened that kind of shifted the course of what I was doing and working there for you was one of those moments because I had a a specific job role and then you saw an opportunity and I wanted to take advantage of that opportunity. Mm -hmm. And so you, you gave me, um, that option to begin editing video and taking photo and working on graphics and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And it kind of shifted my life. And allowed me to even like do this now. Yeah. So, do you have any any crazy butterfly effect moments in your life where it oh, just kind of a ton of them? I mean, you'll have more, obviously. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think anybody that's done more than one thing for a living, um, there's a reason that that happens. Particularly if those things are not don't seem to be related. Um, when I was right out of college, actually my first year of college, I was sort of called to make art, which, which I think a lot of people at that age are called to do. And then they figure out they can't make a living doing that. Um, and then they don't know what they're going to do. And, um, so I joined the service, um, in those days, you you either joined or, or you were joined. Um, and I joined the Navy because I thought that I could use my artistic ability as a draftsman. I didn't know they had draftsmen, but the recruiter explained what that was. And uh, basically, I could sit at a, at a drafting table and use my lettering skills and et cetera. And I thought, well, that's, that's better than Vietnam. So, yeah, I'll do that. I'd sign up for that. And I guess the butterfly moment there was only to find out weeks later in boot camp that, you know, that wasn't going to happen at all, that they needed other specialties. They didn't need draftsmen right then, and so it didn't really matter what the recruiter told me. Um, And away I went to learn how to build bombs and missiles for airplanes, not 
hadn't been on my list before, but somebody saw my future that way, and so that's the way I went for the better part of four years. <clears throat> when I got out of that, uh, I, I still had that creative twitch, uh, and I went to work for a radio station. Uh, I, I wanted to be on the air, and that's hard to do. You can just walk on, usually. And I was a ripe 21 at that point. And, uh, but they did have room for a time salesman, and they thought I'd be good at that. What did that mean? That means somebody has to go out and sell the commercial space, right? The waterbed store needed to buy more time on the air, mm -hmm. right? So I needed to go talk to the waterbed store. Uh, so I did that for a while, and I didn't really like it, but I liked being around those people. And I like being around the on-air people. And eventually I got my shot at being on air. And being on air touched a lot of people that I didn't know, but a lot of people that I didn't know in the industry. And so eventually uh, I got to know some of the ad agency types. And one of them said, you write pretty good copy. Why don't you come work for us? We see a future there. And I thought, well, I never thought about that. I, I did that. And I, and I was particularly good at that. And not that that's what I wanted to do, but I, I didn't know that until I had tried it. And um, uh, yeah, so when I look back, I mean, that, that was the first five years of my adult life. And since then, I've probably had with the exception of the museum gig, which is the longest I'd ever held any job, uh, I probably worked in two dozen different, you know, two different two different things. So you think that the majority of it was you just doing what you did and people would recognize that you were good at it? You were never, like, actually driven to do something specific? They just saw, oh, he's awesome at that. So I was usually driven to do something. For example, in the advertising world, what I really wanted to be was a creative director. And I had some artistic skills, so uh, sometimes those two things bled over, and the, and the creative director was also the artistic director if you were in a big enough agency. And I, and I ended up being in a pretty good size agency in Eugene, which is small potatoes compared to Portland or San Francisco. But the... The, the race to be the creative director there, which they already had, and he was really good, uh, I had to do other things just to be visible. And it turned out I was good at a couple of those things. And mm -hmm. so then it was like, mm, well, okay. I, I didn't know that before, but and I kind of enjoy it. And uh, I can almost make a living doing that, so I'll do that for a while. So those kinds of things, you know. Um, I mean, when, when you, you and I knew each other, you, all you knew is I was at the museum. I did operations at the museum. That's why I was excited to sit down with you. Cause I don't really know anything about what you did before. Besides somebody had told me you were in the service. So that's all I knew. Yeah. 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 So, uh, <laughs> so the, the way I got to the museum was by way we, we well so uh, stuff happened after the ad agency in Eugene um, <clears throat> I got married uh, my wife was from the Bay Area um, she was not real thrilled with the weather in Oregon at that time 
This was in the early 70s. And uh, so I liked what I was doing, but I wasn't hitting a home run. And I thought, I'm, let's go to the big city. I want to work for a big firm. I want to be, I want to be a creative director at, you know, mechanics and somebody, some, a, big, a big firm. And we decided we wanted, to, we wanted better weather. I was okay with that. So we sold our house, loaded up a truck, and had no idea where we would end up other than we had the truck for a three-day weekend, and we drove south until we couldn't go any further. And it was nice weather. It was in San Diego. and um, So you just skipped San Francisco? We just drove on by. <laughs> it wasn't particularly good weather there. It's not. That's what I was going to say. It's no better than here. So... So anyway, um, I applied at a few agencies there, and I wrote some um, spec campaigns because that's what you had to do in those days to get in to that line of work. And nobody wanted me, and we weren't – my wife was working, uh, but we, money was going to be an issue in a while. And I had a long dinner, just butterfly effect, coincidentally with – um, my parents, uh, who lived in Southern California, and one of their retired friends. And he was, um, he had been in the military. He was a retired military, but he was a chemist. And he had developed something that went into hair dye that he'd patented and sold to Clairol. And, uh, I mean, it made him independently wealthy. And instead of doing whatever else he would have done with the money, because he understood hair color, he ended up owning a chain of salons. Hmm. And so he's telling me this whole story at dinner, and I'm thinking, it's cool to listen to somebody that's, you know, an overnight success because of something they invented or that they did. And, uh, so I, I sought him out for business advice. Basically, I'm at this crossroads. What should I do with my life? I was 20, I don't know, six or seven. Uh, he said, well, you ought, to, you ought to think about doing what I did. See, I'm not a chemist. Yeah, I know that, he says, but um, the salon business, you can make some money there. I said, really? That's not what I, I mean. <laughs> and in those days, people who were affiliated with that business, particularly men, were, I mean, the stereotype is they were 100% gay. Yeah. 100% gay. For sure. And, and I don't even think we called it gay at that point. We called it something else. But it was, it was definitely derogatory. And it was, and I, I just, the thought of that was like, mm, I didn't see. Long story short. A year later, I'm in cosmetology school learning to stand behind a chair and cut hair because he said, that's what you need to do before you own a salon. You need to understand the business before you own one, and then you can own multiples. <clears throat> so I did it. Got my license. Uh, worked for a variety of little salons, cutting hair. And I'm like almost 30 years old and thinking – you know, I look good in these pants with no pockets and the polyester <laughs> shirt and, all, and my hair's all permed up. And yeah. I, I look and I'm smarter than these kids are in here because I'm almost 30 years old. Mm -hmm. uh, and I had a decent clientele. 
and eventually had my own salon in Mission Viejo. And um, I did that for about seven years. And I could see it, it was at a time when the economy was crazy bad. Rent was through the roof. Uh, it, it, it was just a bad time to be in any kind of business. Um, and so long story short, I looked for my departure from that realm. But as I was doing all of that, you meet a lot of people. Oh, for sure. Uh, and so one of the men who came in, who, who I was his, his barber, his stylist, uh, worked at a construction company. And I'm complaining. And everybody tells you their secrets. You get to tell them your secrets, right? And I said, I'm, I'm looking for my ticket out of here. I'm going to sell this. One of the people who worked for me wanted to buy the shop. And it was anyway, I went to work because my true love still was advertising marketing. Uh, and his company had grown to a point where they could use somebody with those skills. So they hired me. Um, and I did that. Instead now of talking to retailers or whoever I talked to at the first ad agency, now I'm a marketing person for a commercial construction firm. So I get to talk to the architectural community primarily and some developers. And I did that for in Southern California. So I did that for some years. Um, and friends of ours that I hadn't seen in a long time, moved to L.A., have dinner with them. He, I, I, know, I know her, but I don't know him. He's considerably younger than she is. At this point, he's probably late 20s. And uh, well, what, what's he do? Well, he's going to school. He, he was a guitar player for a Holiday Inn band that played all around the country. Like a cover band? You know the, the typical, uh, the typical four piece that you'd see at the Holiday Inn anywhere in America playing Proud Mary over and over and, and you know. Yeah. Uh, so oh oh so what are you doing now? Well, I'm going to law school. Wow, good for you. You must be smart. And turns out he was very smart. Uh, and he said, uh, Yeah. Uh, you you seem like you're a pretty good abstract thinker. You you should have you should go to law school, uh, right? You're like sure, why not? No, I said no. That's I don't I don't. He said, well, um, you should just take the test anyway. Just take the LSAT and see how you do. You might do better than you think. I didn't think much about that, but I was telling my dad, hey, you know. This is what I hit. And my dad said, so why don't you do that? And I said, because, uh, because I don't know anything about it. And, uh, you know, I'd be like f 40 years old by the time I got out of school, mm -hmm. even if I was accepted. And he said, yeah, or you could just be 40 years old. Hmm. So I cooked on that for a while. I took the LSAT. I did pretty well on it. And the next thing you know, 
Lewis and Clark said, yeah, we got a spot for you if you want to move up here. Well, you had to study for it, didn't you? You take a you take a thousand dollar crash course, which I did, and then you take the test. <laughs> is that easy? And, is it and, just like retaining information or what? Well, it's it's so so lawyers, good lawyers, people that do well in that field are are able to think in the abstract a lot because that's where they live. If you're if that's not good for you, then it doesn't mean you can cram as much as you want. You're not going to pass that test. Um, and and I will give the prep course some credit here. I mean, had I not taken that prep course, I don't know how well I would have done. But it was it was effective. But you're saying think in the abstract in terms of try to find ways around the scenario and and to win and think in terms of hypotheticals constantly. Mm. Right? You have to try and stay ahead of the. Um, and I don't know why I was good at that, but I, well, for the moment I was good at that, I guess. And so it looked like that could be a ticket for us to move out of Southern California and back to Oregon. Um, sure. The thought of being an attorney. Why didn't you stay there to do it? Why did you want to come back here? Well, I applied to five schools. That's all I could afford to apply to. It was expensive to apply. And Lewis and Clark was one of them. Hmm. I applied to UCLA and Berkeley and schools that were closer. But I wasn't accepted. Um, Lewis and Clark accepted me. Another school put me on a wait list. That doesn't work if you're going to have to move. you got to know that more than the day before. So... I was vaguely familiar with Lewis and Clark. I had 20 years before that had friends that went there and spent some time in the dorms there. And um, so when I went there, uh, we, we moved. <laughs> and I went to school full time. My wife worked full time. I went to school full time. Uh, I'm not sure how it happened because I think I was home maybe f four hours and three years, but we had children and uh it started to get the family started to get big mm -hmm. but by the time i graduated in 91 i was a family of five and um and beginning lawyers were making nothing yeah and i, I mean i just remember my wife looking at me after about the second year and thinking what are we thinking here yeah and I kind of wasn't. I was just headed for the gate. I needed to get my degree. I needed to finish that. And so anyway, I did. Um, but there I was, newly minted, and and it didn't look like I was going to be able to make enough money to support the family. And so I went back to marketing. Had an office downtown in Portland, uh, and I a good friend of mine was that. Ticketmaster franchisee for a long time. <laughs> and so I took an office right next to his offices. And when a um, promoter would come in, usually from Seattle, sometimes San Francisco, they had a show coming in, usually music. And it was six months down the road, and they were trying to set up their ticketing deal with him. He'd show them to my office, and I would put together all their local marketing for them, make their radio buys, do their print buys, design their print stuff, and uh, then day of show, if they wanted it, I would do their accounting for them so they didn't have to come to town. 
um, and then I'd pay the act, pay the caterers, pay all the contractors, and uh, and so that that kept me afloat for a minute or two. Uh, uh, old friend of mine and I became partners during that time. Craft beer was new. There were a handful of beer festivals. We happened to go to one. We thought was mediocre. We thought we could do that better. And so we went to the Great American Beer Fest in Denver just on a flyer and walked through that and said, yeah, this is better, but there's still some things that idiots like us could do better. And so let's let's do a beer festival. So we put together a beer festival and did that for five years in Eugene uh, until that sort of ran its course. Um, Anyway, during that time, that was that was you know that happened for three days a year, and we spent some hours doing that. But I had uh, made a decent, come up with a decent relationship with a promoter out of Seattle who did a lot of shows in Portland and in Salem at the amphitheater there, and so I had met him at the jazz festival where I had done his books for him when he was here, and I was in law school in the summers. I would do accounting at the jazz festival. Well, eventually, the jazz festival committee booted him, and they let the director uh, and I, by the talent, do, do, the, do the whole three days. That lasted for a couple of years. Um, the, so here I am at the crossroads of Here's my new law degree. Now I'm, you know, I'm ready to go, but I don't, but I, but I gotta be able to make a living. And the museum came along, mm. and the museum needed, um, I don't know what they needed, but I thought they needed a marketing person. That's still my first love. Yeah, I've got a law degree, but I really <laughs> like to, and I need to feed my family, and I'm, I can't mess around here forever. Uh, so they said, yeah, come. I sent them a resume, and they said, again, they had come in to my buddy's Ticketmaster office to have tickets set up for a big show they had coming, big Chinese show, bigger than the museum had ever seen, which wasn't very big, but they thought it was going to be huge. He introduced them. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. They said, oh, we're looking for a marketing person. Maybe you Anyway, I interviewed, and... Uh, the director at the time was pretty high strung, and he said, great, let's do it. Um, uh, the museum became one of my clients. I was going to do their marketing, whatever else he wanted. Well, Because they didn't have anybody on staff to do it. No, yeah. they, they had a one-person art department, marketing department, but there really wasn't any marketing going on. Director's wife was doing most of it. Anyway... Um, They paid me really well. They paid me really well. They were my biggest client by far. And I would work two to three days a week for them and then do, you know, I'm working from the museum today and I'm doing Willie Nelson at the beach somewhere at the, at the, in Warrington for, uh, for this next week. I can't do anything for you because I've got to, right? So eventually the director called me in and said, this isn't working for us. 
I said, yeah, I was kind of thinking <laughs> that this might be too good to be true because the show that they, the Chinese show that they wanted uh, me to help with was like a year away. And I thought, man, my this is going to keep the lights on for the next five years for <laughs> yeah. me, right? And so I, it was about a month, maybe five weeks. He called me and said, no, this isn't working. I said, yeah, okay, I get it. Uh, thanks very much. He said, no, 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 we, 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 I'll just make a space for you. You just come work for us. I, I can't have you work in other places. You need to be here all the time. We've got a big show coming. Yeah, I know, but it's not that big. I said, I'm kind of an events guy. That's really... That's kind of what I do. And he said, well, this is going to be like an event every day. And I said, uh. anyway, I, I went to work there because because I needed to, not because I particularly wanted to. That's interesting because usually entities or corporations or whatever institutions, they want to hire freelance because then they don't have to pay benefits and all that kind of stuff. But right. they offered to bring you on. Well, again, different time, yeah. right? mid-90s, uh, and these people were not locals. This director and his wife were relatively new. Art Museum, until they got there, and even some shortly after they got there, probably saw, I don't know, they might have seen on a busy day, they might have seen a couple hundred people. Yeah. Uh, and he's talking, yo, we're going to see a thousand people. We're going to see 2,000, we're going to see 300,000 people for this show. And I thought, okay, well, I'll ride the, you know, I'll, I'll ride the dream here for a while. Fine. It's another year. I can pay my bills. And, um, wow, he, he, he was right. I mean, mm -hmm. and the job got to be huge. It got to be more than promoting his show. Then pretty soon it's like, well, uh, he didn't really want to hire a manager in that department, so couldn't I just take that department? Sure. So pretty soon, I think I've been there about a, well, I'd been there for the first show, the big Chinese show. The show did 400,000 people, hmm. which blew my uh, and everybody else away, and he was not slowing down. He was, he was, he had the next six shows lined up, and Portland was paying attention. So then rather than hire a bunch of people to do operations, he just said, that's, that you, that's what you'll be now, operations. Said, what does that mean? And basically what it meant was whatever the heck he wanted it to mean. <laughs> yeah. So it was kind of fun for me. It was different every day. And so anyway, I thought I'd be there for a few years. And uh, you know you know better. I was there. Turned into 20. 21. 21. Yeah. So it sounds like every, every single one of these situations, they're all – primarily surrounding people mm -hmm. like you basically i mean you built your entire career in all these different places off of your interactions with people mm -hmm. yeah i like people yeah i like working with people and turns out all along that's that's really been my strength i just didn't recognize that mm -hmm. yeah it didn't matter what you were actually doing it mm -hmm. was more about the the human aspect yeah uh-huh in law school, my second year of law school, there was a class. You didn't have much opportunity to take electives, but I but there was a slot in my schedule where I took a class called Alternative Dispute Resolution, and that sounded interesting to me. 
uh, I took the course, and the professor was particularly good. And he was basically the course said, you know, you don't have to sue somebody to get them to change their mind or to come to terms. So there's a there's a different way to do this. That interested me. Uh, the psychology of that interested me. Um, and so really, when I got out of law school, I thought, as I got close to getting out of law school, I thought, that's what I, I, I want to be a mediator. That's, that's, what I, that's my niche. <clears throat> I feel drawn to that. But you couldn't make a living doing that in those yeah. days. But as it worked out, um, easily half of my time, bigger, more than that, as the museum staff grew, was taken up with just trying to get everybody to march in the same direction or play nice. Um, I, and you can imagine, well, you, you, you were there, you witnessed. When you're, when you're trying to manage blue-collar people and have them be in sync and feel like they're connected to museum curators and white-collar staff, uh, that's a stretch for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And the expectation of the top is get it done, make this happen. But the expectation at the bottom, meaning the least of them, and I'll say most of the blue collar staff, they didn't have the education or the sophistication that um, some of upper management had, and certainly not the curatorial staff. Mm -hmm. but, um, but to the extent you could show people how they fit together, mm -hmm. Um, then it worked for both of them. And occasionally, not usually, but occasionally, you know, a maintenance guy would feel pretty proud of what he did in that particular gallery space or what he had to do with the, uh, this particular exhibition. As would the curator who suddenly, maybe even for the first time, appreciated, yeah, I'm getting the kudos for this, but the guy that cleaned it up and made it look good. Yeah, that, that's... That's interesting. You're, you were kind of like a middleman between the 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 wealth and the normal people yeah. to break it down. Yeah. You kind of had to set expectations for both groups. Yeah? Yeah. yeah. I, I know what you mean, though, because that's, that's one of the most important things that I don't think a lot of people understand is that if you give somebody the opportunity to take pride in whatever they're doing mm -hmm. and make them feel like they're responsible for the outcome. Invaluable. They're, they're far more likely to do a good job and appreciate everything that's happening. Yeah. If you're just barking orders and telling people what to do, they're not going to care. Yeah. So when I knew I was going to retire, um, I didn't, you know, I was not, I was transparent about that. Uh, I just said, this is the day I'm leaving. And it was like a year and a half later. This is the day I'm leaving. Do what we need to do here to make this a smooth transition. And that started to happen. And I thought, you know, I'm going to have an opportunity to do what I've been doing, uh, sitting in a room with multiple people and having them get along and feel like they're all valuable people and they all can help each other and they can agree on some things. And when they disagree, it's okay. Nobody's no blood. Um, and maybe I can do, maybe I can get a mediation practice together. Hmm. I don't have to make a living anymore. Uh, if, if no one raises their hand and wants help in that, well then 
okay, no harm, no foul. But if I'm going to try it, this is the time to try it. So a couple years before I retired, I hung up a shingle. I started back to small claims court where I had in law school worked for a while doing mediating small claims cases. I signed up to do that pro bono again and started doing that. Um, then I got hooked up with the city and pretty soon some cases were coming. I wasn't super busy, but it was kind of cool and I got to do the work I wanted to do. And now uh, I'm thinking it's time to sort of retire from that a little bit. So I didn't realize that. You've been mediating for the last few years? Yeah. Yeah. In in what? Like marriage disputes? No, I don't do domestic relations. No, no, no. <laughs> That's a tough job. That's, I've been with a few mediators uh, for that. Uh, no. Uh, having been through that on the other side, I don't know. I know. Not, not that it, it would have been helpful if I didn't. If I'd have known a mediator then, but mm -hmm. no, um, uh, most of the cases that I'm interested in doing and that I choose to do are workplace because that's what I've been doing for 25 years. Yeah. Um, and a lot of it is supervisor direct report. So there's some power balancing that needs to happen there. And um, it's, it's, that's meaningful work for me. That's tough though, right? If you have a a, a boss and a subordinate and mm -hmm. you have to mediate between the two, doesn't the boss usually just be like, hey, I'm the boss. Like do what I told you to. Sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah, sometimes. <laughs> that that so, so They have no interest in mediating. They they're the boss. Well, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. I mean, they have a boss too. Mm. And their boss is not as interested as they are. Their boss is wanting things to get done in a certain way. And if you're going to get in a knot down there and I have to come and take care of this, you know, wait till your dad gets home. Yeah. yeah then there's real trouble. So uh, it's in their interest to have things work smoothly. And it's also a good opportunity for a boss and, a, and his or her direct report to sit in a room and figure out, is this about work or is this about something else? Yeah. Is this a crappy fit? Should we just not even continue this relationship? Which means one of us is going to find the door. Maybe. I mean, good yeah, to know. It's pretty difficult to fire somebody these days, isn't it? Terrible. Terrible. It's, it's ridiculous. Um, particularly in municipal municipal. Yeah, I mean, you, you have to have like a paper trail, like five five occasions and and. So that's if you do it on your own. If you if if once you lose sight of the objective, which is we need to get this work done in this manner, and your objective becomes I, I don't want to work with that guy anymore. Well, okay, we need to talk about that because if that's really what it's about, well then just end the suffering. Mm -hmm. But if really if both of you are aimed at the same thing, it's just that you're having a, you're running into each other. We can talk about that. We can figure out a way to do that. It's a, it's a, it's a fun, it's a fun way to practice law because the onus is on the parties, not on, not on the mediator. True. You're the neutral party. You're just helping them see their do, issues. Do you want this to work? Yeah. Probably will. If you don't, save, <laughs> I'm still getting paid. save me another hour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I enjoy that work. And uh, frankly, 
butterfly effect again. Uh, there's a couple of colleagues that I've trained and worked with for 10 years now that we really like working together. So we look for opportunities to work together. Um, one of our clients, City of Gresham, we were doing some training. Uh, through the training came a woman, middle-aged woman that um, worked for the state. Uh, at the end of the training, she said, you know, I work in child welfare. And these skills would be fabulous. Um, they would work great for our caseworkers. Uh, I would like every one of them to know these skills. We said, bring them, you know, absolutely. How many would there be? Wouldn't you like to sign them up? She said, no, there's too many of them. And, and besides, um, caseworkers last about a year and a half, and then they burn out. They're done. Oh, well, what are you proposing? Well, maybe y'all could sort of contract with child welfare. Well, what would we do? Train people? No. No, there's this series of meetings that the caseworkers have with parents who have just had their children removed for safety reasons. And as you can imagine, the meetings sometimes are contentious because nobody's happy at those meetings. Yeah. And we've always asked the caseworkers to facilitate those meetings. But maybe you all could come in and do that and get the caseworkers out of the crosshair. Parents, understandably, sit down for the first time with caseworkers who have taken their children, and the caseworkers are the devil. I mean, it doesn't matter what they say, they're the devil. So let's put a third party in the mix that doesn't have any dog in the hunt mm -hmm. so that the parents feel like they've got a voice here that's not out to get them. Yeah. And let's move this case forward. We said, ah, piece of cake. Sure, we'll do that. So we signed a contract. The first year, I think we did 15 of those meetings. And they were pretty rough. But, you know, the next year we did, I want to say, 100 meetings each, the three of us. The next year, well, last year I did uh, just about 200 of those. During COVID. Yep. Lots of Zoom calls, I imagine. Yep. Yeah. And that uh, that work is gritty. It's not the same as, you know, going into a corporate environment where you can't get along with your boss, you can't get along with your coworker. Let's talk about that. This is a whole different deal. This is facilitation work, same skills, but... Um, Sounds like it would be way more emotional. It's, uh, you're not seeing people at their finest moment, let's yeah. put it that way. And uh, and when you talk about kids, the yeah. kids are always taking the brunt of it. So I go home at night. My wife would say, how was your day? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm in a pile, right? And I would say, oh, whatever, how was your day? Well, my my wife works. Um, I guess I can say this. It's not, it's, man, man, I won't say this. My yeah, wife, my wife works for uh, uh, a mission-based uh, company that deals with some of the same clients. Mm -hmm. 
How's your day? We both look at our shoes, right? And I remember this caseworker one time when we were just getting started uh, at child welfare. He'd been there a long time. It was unusual. I mean, considering most caseworkers last year and a half, this guy had been there like 15 years. How do you account for that? Self-care, you got you to gotta pay attention. You gotta, this, this work will get you down. And I thought, you haven't been where I've been. Nothing gets me down. I, I, can, I can do this. But sooner or later, I'm having dinner, and we're not talking. My wife and I are talking to each other because both of our days have been not yeah. good. So I say to the caseworker the next time I see him, hey, about that self-care stuff, well, well, what do you suggest? And he said, um, every Sunday I go to the airport and I drive three Uber trips. I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, you need to be able to talk to people regularly that are not in the pits of crisis and that are having a great time. They're happy to be going. They're happy to be coming back. They've been on vacation. Huh. They And they want to talk. And you need to be able to talk to people that are not having the worst day of their life so that you can talk to people that are having the worst days of their life. And I thought he was crazy. And I was telling my son-in-law that, who drove Uber for a while. And he said, well, no, you should try that. You know, you'd be good at that. Uh, I did. I tried it. And it. And I not only did it work, but I loved it. <laughs> I, I, mean, I would want to do that for my regular job, right? Um, on Sunday nights. And so and so to this day, on Sunday nights, unless I got something crazier going, I drive to the airport and do my Uber runs. And surprisingly, on Monday, you're ready to go back to work. So They'll just let you do one night a week for a couple hours? No big deal. They don't care. You yeah. drive whenever you want. Yeah. 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 That's cool. Kind of fun. So, yeah, you got to break it up. I, I can't imagine doing that type of work all day, every day. I'm sure it just destroys you. There is. So you go to the airport before COVID and you go to the waiting lot where all the Ubers and the Lyft people sit. And all the taxi drivers are out there on this massive parking lot. And there are guys out there that that's all they do seven days a week. Mm -hmm. They'll let you drive 12 hours a day and they do. They work every hour. And yeah, they're making sixty, seventy thousand dollars a year, and they're just zombies, they're just zombies. They have no life. Uh, no, no. Yeah, I mean, there's got to be a balance, and that's what's interesting about everything you've just said. How many times you switched careers, and how drastically different they were. Most people. Most people just get in one thing. And yeah. They just ride it out. And they might be miserable. They don't care. They yeah. got they got kids going to college they got to pay for, the mortgage, yeah. the car payment, yeah. and they just ride it. Well, I, I will say at the museum, I was done after about six years, seven years. I, I could have easily, but I couldn't easily. I had a family that was growing up and responsibilities, and I had sort of – dabbled in 14 things before I ever got there. My wife had worked herself to the bone so that I could go to law school. And it just felt like this is stable. I've got a good gig here. Uh, 
I, I'm, I'm not a big art museum fan, but it's a good job. Uh, so I'll, I'll stay there. But what, 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 what was the, uh, the catalyst or what was the thing that kind of just made you feel like you were done with it after six years? Uh, well, uh, so, so you, you, everybody has to be aware at this point, the world is different and it's been changing. I mean, it does. And there's some truth to, you know, you remember at some, well, you're too young. At some point in your life, you work for somebody that's a lot older. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, I'll give him a little grace because he's older and he's old school and, you know, he doesn't get it. He just doesn't get it. And I found myself more and more not getting it. This person's being a hooligan. We're going to ch chat with this person. And if the person doesn't get it, we're getting rid of him and replacing him with a person who does get it. Hmm. We've been transparent here. This guy doesn't like his job. It's not like it's a, something new. He just decided after he took the job, he doesn't like it. Fine. No harm. No foul. See ya. Can't do that anymore, like you alluded to earlier. Mm. You know, we need to make multiple. Yeah. We need to ramp up to that. Or the diversity thing, which is full-blown now, but, but 10 years ago was sort of building. And the... And the my generation, you know, would say things like, I don't see color or uh, all kinds of stuff that now we look back and go, oh, yeah, that was, oh, yeah, we really didn't get it. And the more of that you layer on to, the more of those things become prerequisites to doing the actual job, it just got to be, wait a minute, this, this is a whole different ballgame. And you know what? I'm not too old for it. So it is hard work. I didn't come to here to be to work like that. I, yeah. So, so that started to feel that way. Yeah. The last year that I was there, <laughs> I mean, we we were we were trying as an institution trying to do the right thing by everybody. It's an art museum. You've got institutions don't lean farther left than art museums. <laughs> With the exception of the blue-collar people who probably don't lean further right than any other blue-collar. So, I mean, it was just a political craziness. Now I talk to people that are still there, and they freely tell me, yeah, you wouldn't make it two weeks here. <laughs> I, don't, I don't hear good things about it anymore. And uh, I started working there in 2010, and it was great. Everybody – I'm, I'm going to be positive and I'll be negative, but mm – -hmm. Everybody that worked there genuinely seemed like they wanted to be there. People, yeah. people were excited to be there. Oh, they do. They would take significant pay cuts mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. work mm -hmm. in a place that uh, most of them went to, to school to study art. Mm -hmm. But you have a, a, an amazingly talented group of people. Uh, I worked with lots of young ladies in the education department who had master's degrees. Yeah. I graduated high school. Yeah. I was making more money than them. Yeah. They're making $30,000, $35,000 a year mm -hmm. with master's degrees. Mm -hmm. And that made zero sense to me. Mm -hmm. And so that was, that was the most difficult part is that um, you, could never, you could never get ahead. I would get 25-cent raises. That's not even cost of living. Mm -hmm. 
And it was so disappointing because they rely so heavily on the uber wealthy in Portland. But there's no way to get it down to the employees. To trickle down. Yeah. So imagine yourself working there for 20 years with that dynamic at play year after year after year with some really talented people um, basically being exploited. Uh, you know, occasionally you hear, you'll hear from the underlings you'd hear, wait a minute, we just paid $400,000 for that painting and we can't get 3%? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Because no one, well, some will say, and what I said at the beginning, I had no interest in working in an art museum. I mean, I liked art, but the museum, the art museums are a construct. They are a figment. Uh, they're a good idea proposed uh, by the basically the 1%. Mm -hmm. Uh, and without the 1%, they don't exist. They, exactly. they just don't, it just doesn't happen. Um, so you constantly have to cater to the 1% to, to and, and the folks that have to interface with the 1% need to be compensated at a level that lets them afford to do that. But everybody else, yeah, you're lucky to work here, and that's the way they felt. They were lucky, and they were lucky to work there, because I'm gonna say this, and somebody will see this, and they will tag me for the rest of my life. But at this point, the rest of my life is much shorter than it was. So I don't care. <laughs> um, yeah, they were lucky. They're lucky to to work there because they they because it's not a real job. It's not a real job. It's not a job that matters enough to anyone else that people are willing to pay for it. Mm -hmm. At $20 a head to get into the museum with hundreds of thousands of people coming, and that's still not enough to even get half the bills paid? <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, there's significant issues with the way that revenue is generated, and I don't have details. I've heard a bunch of things. Yeah. I'm sure you know things, but you don't have to comment on if you don't want to. But there were departments that lost money, oh. hemorrhaged money every <laughs> single year. Other ones that basically supported them. There's never talk of like, hey, you know what? You guys have never made a dollar. I'm sorry. We got to cut you loose. It's you yeah, you can't look at it that way. And I know people wanted to. And certainly if you were on – if you worked for a department that felt like you were supporting somebody else's paycheck because mm -hmm. you were, mm -hmm. that felt weird and sometimes not right. But that – you can't look at it. That way. It, it needs to function as a whole. Um, but then it, why split it up? You know, split it up by expertise. That's all. You mm -hmm. know, it takes so many building blocks, each with its own little – uh, uh, area of expertise to to produce this. So my take from day one was, you know, when my first boss there said, hey, it's an event every day, I, I got that. But I took that as this is entertainment. You know, it's one thing for the 1%, for the people that deal in art, for the people that whose, whose wealth 
in some part depends on the art market. I get that. That's one thing. But in terms of real life, this is an entertainment venue. And to the extent you can do that, everybody's happy. Even even the lowest guy on the totem pole. Mm-hmm. Well, I probably can't say that either anymore. Anyway, the lowest, <laughs> the lowest guy there. The lowest guy there uh, still feels some pride in because people will talk, public will say, that was a fabulous exhibition. Really, what made it fabulous? Well, for a lot of people, I won't even say most people, but maybe most people, it was an experience that that was one of a kind. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could go to China and see the soldiers entombed, the terracotta soldiers, or you could come here and see how we've set this up in a way that you won't see it this way anywhere else. And you'll learn about it, and somebody will talk about it, and we'll have a big party or, sorry, party around it. I mean, it'll be an experience. Mm-hmm. It'll be an entertaining, educational for sure, but entertaining experience. That's not the predominant <laughs> That's not the predominant philosophy in art museums. Entertainment somehow cheapens the product. Hmm. It need, it can be educational because it has to be educational. Otherwise, you're paying taxes. Um, but to be entertaining, particularly if there's even a whiff of it being at the expense of serious or educational, well, then you can't do it. You know – the photo booth that we put together for Friday nights mm-hmm. with your name on it uh, was total entertainment. But it was mixed enough with serious art that people could take a piece home with them that maybe caused future conversations or think about it differently. I always just felt like you were bored and you wanted well. something <laughs> exciting. So you'd just come up with these ideas and then we'd do them. And I'd be like, okay, let's do it. Well. True, but but they needed to they needed to serve some sort of purpose. Yeah, and uh, and again, I mean, I was focused on entertainment, trying to honor the educational piece as often as we could. Uh, but at the end of the day, everybody one of the ideas that everybody on the staff, from the director to the lowest person, could get behind was, wouldn't you like? Generally, people in Portland to feel like the art museum was just a great place to be. Some people would think it's fun. Some people would think it's a serious academic exercise. People would have different reasons, but they would all think favorably of the art museum. As opposed to what you get now is they think favorably about specific exhibitions. Not the institution. It's what you brought to town which locks you into, okay, what's the next big thing? Because we're going to die in the middle. We, we, we can't go too long without a big show. Well, that's entertainment, folks. That's If that doesn't bark entertainment, I don't know what does. If you're a promoter, you rely on the next big show or you don't eat. Yeah, It's the same. But like we were saying earlier, a lot of it relies on the uber wealthy to support it because it would totally fail. 
But isn't there also some sort of tax incentive where if you store your personal artwork there, you get to write it off or something? (laughs) Isn't there something that happens with that? Yeah. Well, I'm not an expert in tax law. But suffice to say, if you have a piece and it hangs in a museum for a period of time, any museum for a period of time, uh, there are some tax advantages that you could avail yourself of if that's what you want to do. Yeah. So, I mean, it it benefits people who own art – to keep it in there in one way or another. The art market, people that are participate in the art market are a small, it's a small contingent of people. That, that's not a, that's not most of Portland. Mm-hmm. There are a few, most of them are wealthy. They can afford to be in the market, but it's just a few people. Um, for everyone else, what's the value of the museum? And we, we ask that 4,000 times in the 20 years. I mean, and the, and the answer is always the same. You get a few people that say, well, it's a, it's a place that we can go. It's shelter. We can go there and get away from the hubbub. And uh, other people would say, you know, I learn a lot about history. And if that's a way that you learn history and you're interested in that, yeah, I can see that. Um, so there's these little niches. But when China or Egypt or somebody else comes to town, Monet, um, that's entertainment, folks. I mean, there are all those other little things, too, but that's entertainment. That's what gives you 400,000 people instead of 1,000 people. And as long as you have to rely on that, then the fact that you don't call it that, that you put your eggs in the education basket first— and, and and to the and ignore the entertainment piece, that made me crazy. I, that's what made my job hard. That's the part that bored the hell out of me. Because you were trying to make it more entertaining, and they felt that you were cheapening it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, I get it. Just, but that was a difference of opinion. You just didn't understand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, a lot of that going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was a cool place, and I. I'm very grateful to have worked there, and it changed my life in a lot of ways. Well, you're, you're, I like the way you started. It, the payback for me was when talented people would come through, and we had a bunch of them that came through. You knew you were going to be able to lease them for a moment in time, and they are going to go somewhere else and do good stuff that was good for them. Uh, and occasionally you'd find somebody that was a good fit that was going to be there a long time, but not very often. Because most people that had any kind of drive, any kind of uh, want to do better, um, they didn't last very long there because because there was no upward mobility, right? Yeah, there was nowhere to go, for sure. And you... You're like, well, I could do this. Again, I'm thinking this guy has got some talent that will pay him right now. Well, not much here, but it'll pay him right now anywhere else. And it, and if he was my kid, I would be pushing him that way. And if I recall this, it's just a gut thing. I don't remember the words. But I think I met with you and your boss multiple times. That, and I felt like. After each of those meetings, you know, if this guy wants this, he'll do that. But you don't have to spend this much time trying to convince him. That's not your job. And it wasn't my job, but it just felt like that's sort of how it felt. 
fortunately, you took the bait and you went the route you went. And I and I'm. It sounds like that was good for you. It was great. I mean, the over the course of my adult life, I get excited about something and then I wear it out within a couple of years. Yep. And then I got to learn something new. Yep. And I did that and I wore out just doing shows every night at the museum and I started getting into taking photos and I mean the museum for as much shit as I can talk about the museum, the museum paid for me to learn how to edit video. Mm-hmm. I would watch hours and hours of videos on the internet. Mm-hmm. Uh, lynda.com Yep. And they would pay me. I mean, I'm not sure everybody always knew they were paying me. No. But I, when it was down, I would watch videos and I would learn. And then, yeah, I'd come to you and my boss and say, this is uh, what what I want to do. And you being in the position that you were and being the risk taker that you are, (laughs) were able to make that happen. And uh, the, I don't know if you remember this or not, but um, one of the, one of the things that sticks out in my mind that, I appreciated about you is that you, like I said earlier, you gave people the opportunity to do stuff if they were going to do it. You didn't like, you didn't tell people to do things. You gave them the freedom to figure it out. And I was given that uh, office in the basement. Right. And the carpet was torn up and yep. shitty and stained. It was from the seventies. And I said, uh, I want to put new carpet in there. And it was $800. Mm-hmm. And I went to my boss and he's like, yeah, go talk to Rob and see what Rob says. And you, do you remember what you said? No. You said, would you spend $800 of your money to redo the carpet? And I go, yeah, Rob, I would. <laughs> so that was, the, that was you letting me decide. Well, different things are important <laughs> to different people, right? Yeah. So, uh, that was, that was, anyway, that was, uh. We started this with uh, talking about the butterfly effect and how other people and circumstances affect your trajectory, your career trajectory. Uh, And I think almost always, almost always, it's people, it's acquaintances that send you off in a new direction or a different uh, direction. Yeah. Interestingly, uh, I was just talking to my wife about this uh, not very long ago. Yeah, the mediation thing is I like doing it, and I still do it if the right case comes up. I, I, I still like doing it. I still like working with the people that I work with. Um, but there are some things that I could not afford to do uh, when my family was growing up uh, and I had a mortgage and what, whatever that – that I could afford to do now, like work at Home Depot or, uh, you know, do some entry level, but working with people mm-hmm. uh, that would be fun. Not for the rest of my life, but, you know, maybe for a couple of years I could touch the tools and talk to people in the mm-hmm. plumbing section or whatever. That would be fun. Um, uh, so it, it's nothing that I've done before. You, you spend all this time trying to figure out what you're going to do, and then you kind of just end up doing something. All this time goes by, and then no. you're like, what What did I do? Did I, did I do it right? Where am I going now? And I, I constantly deal with that. Like, 
quitting yeah. and just doing something wild, being a scuba diver instructor. I don't know. It just, if you can take care of what you got to take care of, I don't know why it matters. I, I think it's so cool. People reach, I think my age, like 35, they've been doing something for 15 years and they're like, what am I doing? Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're a, a so I do have uh, boys your age and uh, it's interesting to me. I, I've always thought that my work ethic would stand alone and be uh, I didn't I don't think any either of my boys would say yeah the guy was a couch potato he didn't you know he didn't I I put in my share of long hours and hard work and and I want that ethic passed down that's what I want my boys yeah but they're much more balanced than I was and Maybe that's not all bad. Yeah, I mean, there's a number of ways to look at it. I think um, I think some people put too much focus on work and then you don't enjoy as much. But mm. then there's also some people who enjoy too much and don't work. You got to find the balance. Yeah, yeah. You can't just party. Yeah. And you also can't just work 16 hours a day for 20 years. Like, right. you got to get in between. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, really what needs to happen is you need to be in retirement age from 20 to 30. Well, and, you know, it's, it's all reversed, you know, I, I kind of was. And I, and I think maybe that's what, um, you know, I was almost I was I was when I graduated from law school, I was 41 and um, within minutes it became screamingly clear to me that I had had my fun and that the rubber needed to meet the road right then. Yeah. Uh, my family needed my support. And that might mean it wasn't going to all be fun. Uh, my wife, on the other hand, um, CPA, straight line accounting. It's all she's ever done. It's all she's ever known. Because it afforded her independence at a young age and supported our family. Um, I mean, it's always been a rock for her. It's her security. Uh, and so she gets to be retirement age and and now she wants to be she wants to enjoy retirement, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and she deserves it. I played, to, you know. <laughs> I cut hair. I, you know, I worked as a paste-up artist for a while. We're going to add ages, all fun. Stuff. We're going to radio. It was all fun stuff, uh, but it wasn't building a career. Yeah, a whole basket full of experiences, but they were not related. Yeah, but experiences are cool. No doubt, I, I enjoyed every minute of them. Yeah, that's good. Uh, but yeah, yeah. So I think at some point, museum. You say, okay, well, it feels like I've done this enough. I've repeated this cycle enough that I need to move on to something else because I'm not as effective as I used to be for the company. That's the other thing, too, is like you can tell you, you can, can tell. tell when somebody's heart isn't in, in it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So, but, but on the other hand, I have some financial responsibilities here, and so I'm going to I'm going to bear down here for another few years and do what I need to do and then 
and then we'll do something else. But uh, yeah, yeah. And I, anybody that watches this, I don't want them to go away thinking I'm not grateful for the museum opportunity because it basically raised my family. Uh, I'm not sure what I would have been doing otherwise. Um, it, it, it was good from that aspect. It was stressful as hell. I mean, it was. But at at the same time, I admit I'm a bit of an adrenaline junkie, and we did some stuff that other museums never would have even attempted. Yeah, did you – I know you were always trying to push and, and do – like we talked about earlier, some more entertaining, exciting stuff. Yeah. Were you always getting pushback from, from people? Like, was it hard to get people to embrace whatever crazy idea you're coming up with? We, we, I would just say this. There were many things, small things that we did, and I'm talking about on the operation side, not the curatorial side, that we did sort of under the radar. A, because it, it would have been very hard for the director, any director, to say, well, that's a great idea. Let's do that. <laughs> because he would not have been able to look his curatorial staff in the eye the next day. Mm. Uh, so there so there was a lot of that that went on that sort of helped my sanity anyway. And I think it felt it, it helped um, some of the other folks that were on the operations side feel more plugged in and like it was – enjoyable to come to work and not just in service to some academic higher standard that they didn't understand. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, was there pushback? Of course there was pushback, unless it worked. Uh, specifically, I can tell you one example. When the first director agreed to do a car show, he would not agree to do that until another museum had done it. Now, he didn't say that, but there was ample opportunity to do a car show. And no, 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 no. Eventually, another museum did a car show, and they did really well in terms of turnout. Mm -hmm. And he was, he was I, for all the things he was not, he was about entertainment. And that's, I think, why we got along so well. We did the car show. Killed it. Killed it. New administration comes to town. He leaves. New administration comes to town. Car show. And it's like, eesh, that's so plebeian. That's so pedestrian. That's so uh, beneath us. That's not real art. Mm -hmm. Okay, but it's popular. Uh, we could talk about it like we talk about art. And would that be a bad thing? And uh, And so what I said before is, now the new director has to go to the curatorial staff and to his board yeah. and say, we're thinking about doing another car show. And I know that was just eating him <laughs> up. He, he resisted, resisted, resisted. But at the board meeting, the board members remember, hey, 150,000 people came through and saw my piece hanging on the wall or came to the museum and said good things about the museum. The museum was in the press all the time. That's our museum. So when he raised that, they were like, bravo. And then it was easier to talk to. But initially, mm. Well, and that was, you're talking about allure of the automobile? Yeah. I think that was 2012, 2013. 
Probably. Something like that. That was the most successful show the entire time I worked there, as far as I know. Well, could could have been. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah well, I mean, successful in terms of numbers of people. Yeah, because right? it appeals to a broad group of people. Very. But is it art? I don't care. <laughs> it's <laughs> it entertainment. Matter. I don't yeah. care. Yeah. Could you say it with a straight face? It's at the art museum. Yeah, I think there's some design things you could talk about there that mm-hmm. are – I mean, there's some serious – artistic endeavor that shows up there. Yeah, it's a weird disconnect because you have this curatorial staff that exists educationally Mm -hmm. on a different level, Mm -hmm. far above me. Me too. Uh, And they are tasked with understanding this art in a way that everybody can understand. But there's also kind of this this um, desire to not have everybody there. Mm-hmm. Like you can't have mm-hmm. podunk people in Mississippi come through and appreciate Monet on that curatorial staff level. Yep. But you want the people to come because that's how you generate revenue. Well, it's not just the revenue. It's it's more than the revenue. A lot of people come to the museum. Like I said, if you, if you get 100,000 people through the museum over the summer, that's a pretty good summer. Uh, but it doesn't even pay half the bills. It yeah. doesn't even pay half the bills. But it does generate a lot of buzz. The philanthropic people, the board usually, and hear the buzz. They feel good about making their contribution. Uh, all, all, all the development people love it because now, oh, you're from the bar, oh the art museum. Oh, that's where the uh, the car show is. Oh, that's where Egypt is. Uh huh. Oh, I love that show. I was, yeah, great. We'll just write the check here. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. I mean, that buzz was valuable across departments. Membership. People want to be a member because there's a great party at the end of Allure, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Right. All of those things played together. Um, so, I don't know the point was there, but. It's a it's a very cool place, and I, I appreciate the time that I spent there. Yeah. I just wish wish there was the ability to to retain people and keep them happy on a financial level, which is even more difficult now. Uh, I don't know how how they're doing, but I'm I'm guessing they had to lay off quite a few people. I, I'm just hearing the secondhand too. I mean, it, it's it's they're like any other any other business in town. It's Okay, it's getting better. Oh no, now we're back. No, we're out. Now we're back. We, we lay them off. Oh no. Oh, 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 the board has opted to pay people for another couple of months. We'll see what happens. Two months goes by. No, nothing's happening. Okay, you're all laid off. It's a pain in the neck for them. Um, There's just not the traffic in downtown Portland that there used to be. Have you been through downtown Portland? It's I, destroyed. I, I drive Uber on Sunday nights, remember? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I have. I've yeah. seen the plywood. Oh, yeah, it's uh, in, in, the, in that um, in that job. It's you. You have to point out the depressing parts, right? I'm taking people from the airport downtown to a hotel. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, yeah. Well, this used to be. Mm, well, that. Yeah, that. There's plywood there, but they're still open. It just doesn't look like they're open. Or, whoa. Look at the Apple store. Thirty-foot mesh barricades around the glass box. Really, I haven't oh seen it. Oh my gosh, it's crazy. Uh, so yeah, it's 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 different. It is different. 
Yeah, it's tough. Something, mm. Something's got to happen because downtown Portland was a cool place. Yeah. And I'm hearing also that, uh, you know, human resources, not just the museum, but across the board, human resources people are just drowning because of the additional layers of political correctness and diversity requirements and just helping people understand how to respect each other has all fallen on their department. Uh, so they're scrambling and that makes the gears turn more slowly. There are a lot of things you can't say anymore. And to work in an HR department sounds like the worst possible hell <laughs> imaginable be. on it anybody. It has to be. It, it has to you be. You can't say anything anymore. It's not about intent. It's just about words. And words don't always mean what you intend them to mean. So so the, so the HR person or the mediator would say it's not about intent. It's about impact. Mm. Right? It doesn't matter what you thought you were saying or meaning. This is how it felt. This is how it sounded to the other person. It sounded disrespectful in some way. Uh, and trust me, when you're my age, wow, it's you are you, you just shut up because yeah. uh, you just shut up. Yeah. For, for fear of being disrespectful. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a bummer, though, because the majority of the people that are, are causing a stink about it are they don't have good intentions. They're just trying to get you in trouble. Well, there is that. I mean, you know that, but. Um... Yeah, there's a story I tell because I do a lot of uh, Zoom calls yeah. with various corporations. And uh, there was a, a company that we were doing some things with. And they were telling their staff, and this is a, a Zoom call with probably 100, 200, 300 people. Mm -hmm. And they're telling their staff that you can't use the word simple anymore. Yep. You don't want to say, hey, Rob, um, here's a bottle of water. I'm going to fill it up. No worries. It's simple because then you may feel inadequate if that's something hard to do. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, what are you? Mm -hmm. we, I can't say something simple. What if it is simple? Mm -hmm. That's a word. Mm -mm. There's a whole bunch of words you can't use now. Yeah. And a whole bunch of ones that uh, the whole uh, – th this is where I said – you know what? I think maybe it's time. Maybe maybe I just need to back out of here. I, I do what I do because I think it's helpful. I want it to be helpful. Mm -hmm. I don't want it to be harmful, disrespectful. But when you are going to require me to list my preferred personal pronoun, my answer in that particular case was, I don't list mine because I want you to call me whatever you're comfortable with, mm -hmm. whatever you're comfortable with. And if they or her makes sense to you, I'm not offended. I'll tell you that in front. But for, but for me to post that says that's important. That's more important to me than it really is. Mm -hmm. But for some people, if that's important to them, post away. Yeah. That's yeah. not yeah i I think we're all just humans, and we're trying to figure it out, yeah, and I have no intention of hurting anybody's feelings. I say stupid stuff, I joke and I say things I don't mean, but I'm not trying to hurt anybody's feelings. humor, most humor humor's <laughs> dead, oh man, oh, and I mean, if I can't do that every day of my life at work, 
if we can't do something stupid and funny at somebody else's expense, maybe mine, <laughs> uh, then it's not fun. And well, then sorry, you know, yeah. sorry, but that's you can't do that. You cannot do that. Okay, so I think I'm out. Yeah, I think I think I'm out. Yeah, it's brutal. Kind of, and I don't know what the end game is there. I don't either. It did the, the, the for people your age. Wow. No, Good I mean it's with that. yeah, it's not even bad for my age. Like I think it's the even younger kids yeah. coming in that yeah. are really pushing this stuff, and I think they think they're doing the right thing, which I can get behind and I understand. Yeah. But like, where does that line keep going? I mean, it just there's no end. We had um, I belong to the. Oregon Mediation Association for some years and eventually was the president of that organization. And of course, the year that I was president was last year when COVID hit and Black Lives Matter and George Floyd and all of that hit the fan. And it, it severed, it, it, it severed the relationship, the association's relationship with a, with a number of really qualified mediators because the bulk of the association, best I could tell, wanted to post on the website, the association's website, that the association stood with Black Lives Matter. And I said, I don't think that's a good idea. Think about what we do. Uh, and think about how that might taint our neutral, right? Our ability to be impartial. Switzerland, yeah. And when the dust settles here, if it ever does, there's going to be full employment for mediators. Somebody's going to have to sit in a room with people who are ready to kill each other and say, really, let's chat this up and not be affiliated with one side or the other. If you want people to come together with a third party, an impartial third party in the room, that, that party's got to be really impartial. So I oppose posting that. That did not work for them, and they still post that. I, I'm no longer affiliated with that association, but... Yeah, uh, and then they probably had an opinion about you. Oh, I'm sure they do. I'm sure they do. Which... I'm sure they do. Is completely false. You're just looking at it rationally. Yeah, it's just there's no rationality. There's too many things that are just one million percent black or white, and there's no middle ground. And it's disappointing. Like you, you should be able to have conversations about things and hear people out and not just align yourself with one certain idea and then everything else is yeah. the devil, you know? That's yeah. not how it works. Yeah, yeah. And I have learned some fabulous things. I mean, some really helpful things along the way. I'm not going to say I, I haven't or that I was right from the get-go because I wasn't. And I understand way better now how things can feel differently to, to you know, who I'm – I am the devil. I am a white male, 70-something white male uh, that that – sort of is the poster child for what we have here. Mm -hmm. And that's, and it's not all good. It's yeah. not all good. Mm -hmm. um, I'm interested in what I can do to change that. What I'm not interested in is asking a person of color or 
some other disenfranchised community. Uh, I'm not interested in saying, how can I help? What, what, what can I do to be helpful here? And have them say to me, that's on you, bud. You need to figure that out. Yeah. I walk away wrongly, I admit, but I walk away thinking, wait a minute, do I have the problem or do they have the problem? Yeah, uh, because I'm trying to help here. That didn't feel like you really wanted me to help. That felt like you enjoyed the spanking more than you cared about the help. That's what it felt like. Yeah. So, yeah. Who knows? There just needs to be more forgiveness and understanding. I think, I think the majority of people... The overwhelming majority of people yeah. want to get along and want things to be cool. And there is so much amplification of the crazy right now. Yeah. It's, I think it seems more crazy than it actually is. I think the majority well, sure. of people. Sure. But I, but I also think uh, in the big picture, in the really big, because we don't, we're not part of the big, I mean, we're part of it, but a small part where we live. Uh, you need to live in New York City or in Alabama or in Detroit or someplace where there's massive uh, population and uh, a much bigger uh, minority footprint than there is here. Mm -hmm. But uh, at the end of the day, some of my lifestyle is built on some of the things I enjoy in life is a result or a result uh, of things that guys that looked like me 50 years ago invented policies or whatever. And those things need to change. And mm -hmm. I'm willing to pitch in and to the extent they make sense, let's change those. That probably means part of my lifestyle is going to go away. It's, it's not going to be better. It's probably going to be not as good. I have yeah. to, I'm going to have to give something up. And that's hard for, yeah. for, for anybody. Yeah. It's hard for anybody. And I think what we're experiencing right now with the whole vaccination thing is people don't want to be told what to do. People do not want to be told no. what to do. That's part of our heritage. We do whatever the hell we want. Yeah. Okay. Okay. You're going to have to, we have to come off of that a little bit, just a little bit. We mm -hmm. have to come off of that a little bit for the greater good here, I think, if, if we're going to make any progress. If we're going to survive. Or survive. <laughs> right. It's not looking great right now. Yeah. It's not. Every day I get on the internet and I read something new. I'm just like, what? What? What are we gonna do next? Yeah. Where are we going, man? Yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. It's it's chaos. Feels like it. Feels yeah. Like it. Well, anyway, anyway. Well, uh, so you're midlife. No, not quite. You're not quite midlife. Well, if they figure out the anti-aging cream, yes. You know? Yeah. Well. You're you're not midlife, but you're probably mid career. I'm I'm open for anything. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. I I have a great job right now, but if something presented itself to me, I'm I'm not tied to anything. Yeah. Yeah. How's your family? They're good. Are they? Kids are growing up. Yeah, that happens before you know it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's all these things that people say that you never really pay attention to when you're in your 20s and 30s and then you get to the point where you have a 14-year-old son. You're like, what happened? How Why wasn't I ready for this? I, I, don't, I, I don't think we understand time. 
I don't think <laughs> you know what I mean. Yeah, I do what you mean. I know exactly what you mean. It's crazy. Uh-huh. Yeah. You spend you spend your early twenties just running around thinking you got to do all this stuff, and then fifteen years go by, and you're like, "What did I do?" Yeah. Now I got. I'm I'm gonna be fifteen years older in in twenty minutes. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. the The way I've been living lately is just like not not getting stuck in my head on things, just doing mm-hmm. doing things. Instead of worrying about what other people think, mm-hmm. I'm just doing what I want to do. I feel like I'm going to be dead in 40 years. So no no one cares. No one's going to care who I was in 40 years. I'm exactly. just going to ride a jet ski off a cliff. Who cares? Exactly. I, I, I'm amazed, amused, not amazed. I'm amused. Um, I used to think, you know, you, you, it's easy for you to imagine an old person. You probably know one, an old, a senior. And the stereotypical senior whose filter begins to falter uh, is not hard to imagine. People old, you know, the get off my lawn is, <laughs> is, is that's people my age. They just say what they feel like, because why wouldn't they? They've been holding it back for their whole life. And now. You're messing up my yard, so get the hell off my lawn, yeah. right? Yeah. I'm going to say that. I don't care if it's politically correct. That's what I'm going to say. And and there's a certain amount of it feels like license that comes with you know. It's hard to get my socks on in the morning because I'm sore everywhere because I worked for 20 minutes in the yard the day before. <laughs> but it's really easy at the dinner table to say, "Shut the hell up," or to say what I feel like instead of mm-hmm, kind of dressing it up. You know, you're right. I would not be good at the museum anymore or anywhere else in the corporate. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you're a neutral party. You are you lazy. Just listen. You're out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's the other part of getting older and realizing that you're getting older is that you can realize you have a different opinion from the people younger than you. Mm-hmm. And you go... Well, am I – did I hit that next tier? Because I'm not agreeing with uh, some of the youngsters. Mm-hmm. It's weird. It is. Yeah. Especially when they're your kids, you know. <laughs> I know, right? Wow. Yeah, mine are going to start getting opinionated here pretty soon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, fun. Well, fun. I, I, think, uh, I think that's a good spot to uh, shut it down. So I appreciate you coming out. Thanks for out. the invitation. <laughs>